sometimes um, it is absolutely critical that we are right, isn't it? Um, sometimes we we need to know that for sure. Um, f- for example, a judge needs to know that he's right uh, beyond reasonable doubt before he passes a life sentence on someone. Or, or a surgeon needs to know that he's right before he amputates. <laughs> or, or the bomb disposal expert needs to be right when he makes the decision to cut the blue wire and not the green wire. <laughs> Uh, there is stuff in life, isn't there, that you have to be right about, um, where, where you need to be sure, because the, you know, the consequences of not being right are, are massive. Um, and, and friends, the gospel of Jesus is like that. It's something that it's crucial to be right about. Um, if you were with us uh, last week, um, uh, as Ollie said at the beginning, we, we began this little series in, in 2 Peter. Um, and, and maybe you'll remember that, that Peter's writing this letter um, because he doesn't expect to be alive for much longer. And, and so he's writing kind of final words, words to urge and um, equip his readers to grow in their knowledge of God. That's what he, he wants for them. He wants them to have a, uh, a grown-up faith, a faith that will sustain them to live for Christ under pressure in a world where the apostles won't be around anymore. And, and the pressure that they're facing, we'll, we'll see more of this next week, um, is not the, it's not the external pressure of a, a culture around them that marginalizes them, as it was in, in 1 Peter, but rather it's the, um, it's the internal pressure of false teaching from within the ranks of the church itself. That's the pressure they're facing. And and so he began the letter, uh, as we saw last time, by reminding them that they have obtained their faith, just like Peter, through faith in the saving righteousness of Christ, bringing them grace and peace with God, verses 1 and 2. But how have they obtained that faith? Well, through personal knowledge of God and and of his Christ, verse 2. And not only that, but it's through the same divine power that saved them, Christ's divine power, that they've been given everything they need for life and godliness, verse 3. And how has that come to them? Well, that also, verse 3, is through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Did you see? It's the right knowledge of Christ that God uses to bring us to saving faith in Christ and give us everything we need to live for Christ. In other words, friends, um, true faith in Christ is based on true knowledge of Christ. You, you can't separate those two things. You can't have one without the other. You can't believe in a Christ that you don't know. And, and so Peter says that in response to what Christ has done for them in the gospel, in, in saving them and giving them everything they need to, to live for him, they are to make every effort to grow in truth and in godliness as they look forward and and await his return. (laughs) And so, to kind of state the the blindingly obvious, correct knowledge of Christ is crucial, isn't it? We've got to know Jesus correctly. We've got to know him as he is, and, and not incorrectly, so that we end up believing in some kind of false Jesus of our own imagination. So, how can we be sure 
that our knowledge of Jesus is right? Well, in the next few verses, I think Peter tells us, he explains to us how we can be confident that our knowledge of Jesus is right. And, and that's crucial, isn't it? Because if we're going to grow in the knowledge of Christ such that we, uh, you know, we foster a deep relationship with him that's based on truth and not falsehood uh, about him, if we're going to grow in living Christ-like lives when, when even within the church um, that there's false knowledge of Christ which is leading to uh, sinful living for Christ, if we're going to grow in that context, we need to know that our knowledge of Jesus is right, don't we? Well, well, Peter knows, he knows how forgetful we are um, of, of the core truths of the gospel. He knows how necessary it is to keep reminding ourselves of what we know so that we're not led astray. And so here is Peter urging us to remember gospel truth. And, and firstly, look at verses 12 to 15 with me because he's, he's kind of saying here, remember gospel truth because soon I'll be gone. Um, have a look at verse uh, 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So, so notice the big concern is to remember, isn't it? Verse 12, I, I intend always to remind you of these things. Or verse 13, to stir you up by way of reminder. Or, or verse 15, to recall these things. He wants them to remember. Do you, do you see? What does he want them to remember? Well, huh. if, you, if you're using the ESV, you'll notice verse 12 says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. In other words, the, the list of qualities that, that he spoke about in verses 5 to 7 that, that kind of summarize Christ-like living. But, but actually, I, I think he's got more in mind than that because the, 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 the Greek, and if you're using the NIV, the, the NIV picks that up uh, quite well, simply says these things. I, I intend to always remind you of these things. In other words, it's not only Christ-like qualities he wants to remind them of, but actually all the gospel truths that he's outlined to them in the verses above. In other words, he wants to keep reminding them that in Christ, through their knowledge of Christ, they've been brought to saving faith in Christ. They've been given everything they need to live for Christ until they finally come to be with Christ in his eternal kingdom. Do you see, he, he sees his task, I think, as one of reminding them of core gospel truths. And that is even though, verse 12, you know them and are established in the truth. In other words, he recognizes that these Christians are not kind of newbies. They're, they're not young Christians who, who don't know the truths of the gospel uh, very well. But they're, they're spiritually established Christians. They're, they're mature Christians who already know and, and are rooted in them. But, but because he wants them to grow in their faith and be sustained under pressure and live Christ-like lives in the middle of false teaching, and, and because he knows that our faith in Christ is based on knowing him rightly, and because he knows how forgetful we are, he, he, he kind of considers it his duty here to be reminding them of gospel truth. And he goes on, look, um, in verse 13. I think it right as long as I am in this body 
to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Do you see, he's got this kind of commitment to, to, to constantly remind his readers of the truth, but he's aware that his time for doing so is, is running a bit short. He's not got much time left in his body. And that, that word for body there in verse 13, it means literally a, a, a tent. It's, it's the word that you'd use to distinguish your physical body from your spirit or your soul. So, so Peter knows that his time in, in, his, in his earthly body, if you like, it's not going to be long. And notice why he thinks this. Verse 14, it's because the Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to him which, which I think is most probably a, a reference to the, do you remember that conversation that he had with Jesus uh, about this and about Jesus' prediction of his death? Do you remember that in, in uh, John 21? Peter's denied him three times and then later the risen Jesus appears to his disciples by the, the, the sea at Galilee and, and he asks Peter three times, doesn't he? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then he says to him, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And Peter, as he's now writing this letter, probably around AD 64, 67, somewhere around there, as as a prisoner in Rome, we think. He's he's now an old man. And I think quite possibly he's just remembering that conversation, Jesus' prophecy of a martyr's death in his old age. And he's saying, I've I've not got long left in this earthly body. I'm, I'm like a pilgrim in this earthly tent. But for as long as I'm here in this body... I will always remind you of these truths and, and I'll make every effort, that phrase again, every effort, verse 15, to make sure that you remember them after I've gone and, and at any time be able to recall them. And friends, I, I think we should see that as a reference to this letter, shouldn't we? He's writing these things down so that his readers will be reminded of them long after he's gone so that they would endure, those truths would endure in, in the lives of his readers. And, and you know, friends, being able to remember is hugely important, isn't it? It's hugely important, but not, not, um, not just something that we sort of do coldly or sort of abstractly with our, with our intellects, you know, like, like sort of downloading a bit of data from the hard drive. <laughs> Um, no, no, remembering is much more than that, isn't it? Remembering is something that affects not only our minds, but also our emotions, um, our wills, and so on. It, it affects our, our whole being. We remember something and we laugh, or we remember something and we cry. We remember something and we change our mind, or we remember something and we change how we behave or what we do. To, to bring something to mind impacts our emotions, our decisions, our, our actions, our whole being, doesn't it? That's, that's why dementia is, is so distressing, isn't it? Um, you know, either to have or, or to watch happening in somebody that we love. Um, it's, it's because not being able to remember affects our whole selves. And, and it's the same when it comes to remembering gospel truth as well. Um, for example, in, in the Old Testament, you, you'll know God's people were to celebrate the Passover 
weren't they? So this was God calling them to remember how he had rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. And, and for generations afterwards, they, they, were to, they were to bring it to mind and remember it. But, but not so that they could just kind of, you know, walk down the street one day and say, oh yeah, I remember. But, but so that they felt it, so that they identified themselves with it and, and let it make a difference to how they live now. It's the same in the New Testament, isn't it? As Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and says, do this in remembrance of me. You see? Jesus recognized our need to be constantly reminded of of Christ's work on on our behalf, to constantly bring to mind the truths of what Christ has done. And, And not just so that we don't forget what happened in a kind of intellectual sense, but rather that we, we remember God's truth so that it informs our whole being, so that it makes a difference to how we live and, and behave as well as how we think. Which means, of course, friends, doesn't it, that we must not imagine that just because we may be established in the truth, verse 12, that we can therefore kind of move on past the gospel to to something else instead. Oh yeah, I remember all that stuff. I did my I did my Christianity Explore course, you know, back in the day. But it's just not about that for me now. You know, God's moved me on to other things instead. Well, actually, we'll see a bit later in the letter. This is exactly what the false teachers were all about. Trying to persuade Peter's readers to move on from the gospel. But Peter here is making every effort to ensure that long after he's gone, God's people remember the central truths of the gospel. And that's because true faith in Christ is based on true knowledge of him. And what he wants for them is that they grow in truth and godliness as they await Christ's return. So he says, remember gospel truth because soon I'll be gone. But I I think he's also uh, saying to them here, look at verses 16 to to 18 uh, with me. Um, Remember gospel truth because of what we witnessed. And and it might have struck you as a bit strange, look, in in verse 16. Do you notice that? Uh, Peter now starts talking about the second coming, doesn't he? Um, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So so why is Peter kind of uh, picking this, this particular subject to, to focus on, the coming of the Lord Jesus? Well, it, it seems to be um, because Peter's concern in writing the letter is the threat of false teachers, and, and it's the second coming of Christ that's the subject where these, these false teachers have accused the apostles of making up, verse 16, cleverly devised myths, which means that Peter needs to defend what the apostles have said about this. Um, it's like that quote I love, it's kind of attributed to Martin Luther, but we're not quite sure whether it is. But, but it, it, it's a quote that says, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth except precisely that little point at which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I might be professing Christ. 
And, and the point, of course, is that we need to be defending the gospel at the point at which it's being attacked, do you see? And, and this is what Peter's doing here. And, and he, he's going to return to it again before the end of the letter. And, and he, he says here, it's not us who have made up cleverly devised myths. And, and he'll go on in, in chapter 2 to, to charge the false teachers, actually, of doing precisely that. If you just glance ahead, look, if you want a, a spoiler, uh, glance ahead to chapter 2, verse 3. He warns that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. In other words, we're not the ones inventing the stories. They are. We're, we're not peddling the, the fake news. No, they're the ones who are doing that. And do you notice how he's changed from speaking about I in verses 12 to 15 to now speaking about we in verse 16. And what he means by we there, of course, is, is himself and the other apostles. And of course, a, a, a major, uh, the, the reality of the second coming of Christ was a major part of the apostles' gospel preaching, wasn't it? Um, in, indeed, you, know, you just think about Peter's own gospel preaching, can't you? Early chapters of Acts, for example, how central to both his, his preaching at Pentecost in chapter 2, his, his preaching in chapter 3 after healing the, the crippled beggar. How central to both of those sermons was the return of Christ as, as judge and, and as king. It's, it's central to the gospel. And it's under attack by these false teachers. So Peter defends it by insisting on the genuineness of the apostles' gospel preaching. Do you see? When it came to, verse 16, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the coming in power of the Lord Jesus Christ, well, all the apostles were teaching the same thing. When we preached to you about Christ's coming in power, he's saying we didn't make it up. It's these false teachers who are making stuff up. And how do we know that? End of verse 16. Well, remember, there's that word again, Remember that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And that's a, that's a reference to what we often call the, the transfiguration of Jesus. Do you remember in the, in the Gospels how, how Jesus takes Peter and James and John up to a, a high mountain where he is transfigured before them? His, his face shines like the sun. His clothes are as white as light and Moses and, and Elijah appear with him and, and God's voice comes out of the clouds, doesn't it? It's heard coming out of the clouds and, and saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's a display of Christ's glory, isn't it? And this is Peter's point, look, in, in verses 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Do you see? Christ was glorified and we were there. We saw it, we heard it, we saw his glory. And that, that word glory, there it's, it's also used very often in the, in the Gospels to speak of Christ's second coming. Uh, Matthew 16, 27 is, is, is one example. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And he'll repay each person according to what he's done. 
or a bit later on in, in 25, 31, where, where, where the Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. There are loads of other examples as well. In other words, the transfiguration, which Peter and James and John had witnessed, was a display of Christ's glory and a foretaste of that great display of Christ's glory that will accompany Christ's return. So don't believe the false teachers who seek to undo the reality of his, his coming. We've witnessed the transfiguration. We've beheld his glory with our own eyes. We've heard God's voice saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We know who Jesus is. We watched him being exalted by the Father. We heard God identify him as his beloved son. So don't listen to those who tell you otherwise. Because it's we, the apostles, not they, the false teachers, who are the eyewitnesses. It's we, not they, who have, who have heard it from the mouth of God himself. Did, did you see? This is, um, this is the eyewitness testimony of the apostolic writers. The testimony that Peter has written down so that, verse 15, after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall or remember these things. And friends, you know, um, the, the, the New Testament is written off by many people today, and sadly, many of them are inside the church as being nothing more than a, a book that records in a kind of subjective way what people have thought about God. But the claim of the Bible itself, and, and this is just one example, it is that men have written under the inspiration of God's Spirit what they've seen and heard from the mouth of God himself. And fr friends, we know, don't we? An eyewitness account carries a lot of weight, doesn't it? In a, in a court of law, an, a, an eyewitness account to something is to have a rock-solid case, isn't it? And friends, what Peter's reminding us of here is that the New Testament witness to Christ is utterly to be trusted. We can have confidence in their eyewitness testimony to Jesus. It's the Jesus of the New Testament who is the real Jesus. Not the Jesus that some false teacher or some revisionist scholar might be peddling. And, and of course there are plenty of those around today as well. So, so Pete, Peter's heart here for these Christians and for us as well is that we be confident that our knowledge of Jesus is right. And so he says, remember the truth. Remember it because soon I'll be gone and remember it because of what we, the apostles, witnessed. Uh, and then look, uh, finally, he, he says in, in verses 19 to 21, I think, remember the truth because the scriptures can be trusted. So he's, he's been making the case, hasn't he, that, that, that Jesus will be coming again in power and glory. It's not some cleverly invented story. This is God's truth. We can believe that he will come again in glory because the apostles were eyewitnesses of the transfiguration, the foretaste of that glory. And, and now look how he builds on this in, uh, in verse 19. Have, have a look. Uh, 
And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Do you, do you see his point there? And he says, you know, not, not only do you have our testimony, but you also have the prophetic word or the word of the prophets. And, and you will do well to pay attention to it. That, that phrase there, the prophetic word or the word of the prophets, is a reference to the Old Testament. And, and particularly to those passages which prophesy about Christ's second coming, which is the, the issue at stake here. And, and he's saying effectively the prophets predicted that the Messiah would come and, and would establish his kingdom. And what the prophet said was true. It was sure. It was reliable. It can be trusted. You can treat it as, as proof for the reliability of Jesus' return. And, and so the falsehood of, of what these false teachers are, are saying, do you see? So he's, he's kind of presenting um, two sources of authority here, isn't he? The sure word of the Old Testament prophets, the eyewitness account of the apostles. And he's saying, verse 19, you do well to pay attention to these. In, in other words, friends, the, the right response to seeing the reliability of the scriptures is to pay close attention to what they say. As, as a light in a dark place, your word, we prayed at the beginning, didn't we, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's, it's in the darkness of our fallen world that God's word lights up our path as it reveals his his plans and his purposes to us. So we must pay close attention to it until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, which are a couple of references to the Old Testament, Old Testament ideas about the second coming and the judgment that will accompany it. And, and friends, you know how important this is for us today? Um, because uh, our world is so full of competing spiritualities, isn't it? Um, I, I think people these days have a, in the West at least, have a kind of pick-and-mix approach to religion, to, to spirituality, don't they? You know, a little bit of this and, and that, a little bit from here and there to, to build up a kind of custom spirituality to, to suit what I want to believe and how I want to live. And all of that is evidence that we live in a dark world. But Christians have the very word of God. God's own revelation of himself. And it's reliable. And it's to be trusted. And we're to pay attention to it as a sure and bright light in a dark and uncertain world. And we are to let it, verse 19, light our way until the day dawns, until he comes in glory and judgment. <laughs> Which means that it's not only reliable, but it's sufficient. It's all we need. Until he comes again, it tells us everything we need to know to be saved and to live godly lives in the confident expectation of his return. So we can, we, can you see what, what Peter's doing here? He's, he's been establishing the authority of the trustworthiness, trustworthiness of both the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets. And he's saying that, that God has equally spoken to both groups. He's, he's given them his revelation, which can be utterly trusted. 
And, and if you now look at verses 20 to 21, he kind of reinforces that by making a, a further statement that he wants them to understand above all. Have a look at verse 20. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see the point? He's he's saying that all of Scripture has the full authority of God. Because those who wrote it weren't making up their own interpretations. This is not uh, man's words about God. But what they spoke came from God's Holy Spirit himself. This is God's words for man. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that what they spoke and wrote was the message of God himself. Did you see? Friends, this is why it must have the supreme authority and and be listened to above the words of any false teachers. This is why it is to be fully trusted. And you know, friends, um, It's sadly the case today that large parts of the church don't believe in the supreme authority of Scripture anymore. Oh yeah, we're Christians, they say. But it's not necessary for us to believe everything the Bible says. There are plenty of false teachers around today as well, of course. People who are selling the church on enticing alternatives to the teaching of the Scriptures. Teachings that in many cases are directly opposed to to the plain teaching of the Bible, but, but are, of course are uh, perhaps more acceptable to today's culture, more, more politically correct, less exclusive, less, less demanding, teaching, teachings that will let us live how we want to live without feeling guilty about it. But friends, um, if, if Scripture is right, when Peter says that it comes from the apostles and prophets, from, from those born along, by the Holy Spirit of God himself, so that what the Bible records are the very words of God himself. If, if Scripture's right, when Paul writes to Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed, well then we, we need to ask ourselves, don't we, what right do we have to believe certain parts of it, but then to refuse the parts that we find harder to swallow? What right do we have to to take the very words of God and and then say to ourselves, even if it's in our hearts and not with our lips, well, this doesn't really apply anymore. Friends, um, Peter here wants us to have a grown-up faith, a, a faith that will sustain us to live for Christ under pressure in a world where the apostles are not around anymore. And he knows that a grown-up faith is rooted in the confidence that we that what we know about Jesus is right. And so that's what he gives us here. He reminds us why we can be confident that our knowledge of Jesus is right. So that we can grow in the knowledge of Christ, based on truth about him and not falsehood, so that we can grow in living Christ-like lives for him. And, And right at the heart of that is that we can trust God's word. It is completely reliable. And so we must act in obedience to it, 
We must defend it and uphold it as a light in this dark world and as the very word of God himself and as the supreme authority in our lives. Let's pray about that together, shall we? Father, thank you um, for the encouragement of this passage. Um, that, that what we read in the scriptures is is your word, and it's and it's true, and it's trustworthy, and we can we can bank our hope in it. And Father, we ask that in a world that is full of competing spiritualities and false teaching about the Lord Jesus, both inside and outside the church. We ask that that we would hear your call to believe your word and defend it and uphold it as a light in this dark world and as the supreme authority in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.